Welcome to the Silicon Trail Podcast. My name is Michael, and with me is my co-host, Johnny. On the Silicon Trail, we discuss recent technology and business trends, and observe where technology is going with an eye for unmet gaps and potential opportunities. What is so funny? <laughs> You're basically saying, how can we get people to have a social life, Johnny? I'm not sure if Yahoo has ever has been representing anything of Silicon Valley for the past two decades. The only other times in, in history where a force has been able to shut down Italy, they've usually brought armies to Because we're old farts and thus we have that much history with games. Right? Like your parents could get into it, your little siblings could get into it, like grandparents could get into it. Stop. But I was so curious to find out what happened. It's a good game. And I went on YouTube. So is this your way of telling the world that you haven't changed your password? So this episode was recorded on March 15th, 2020. We're talking about the gaming industry. You are you stuck working from home yet? It isn't uh, what's it called? Isn't the wife of your prime minister caught with coronavirus or down with coronavirus? Yeah, we have a. Well, we're not forced to work from home, but we've been told to work. We can work from home, so we start working from home. Yep, we have been told, recommended to work from home, and apparently, I was reading the news. The one of the people on Trump's agency that's dealing with the coronavirus says he he'd be open, quote unquote to uh, quarantine in California or to be locking down California. Oh, really? Wow. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, the Santa, um, Santa Clara County is pretty bad. It, well, it's that, I believe it's that one hospital in El Camino that mm-hmm. caught coronavirus and just spread it around. Let's see if I can yeah, everything's escalating. Yep. It's interesting. We covered this, what, two weeks ago? One week ago. Oh yeah, you're right. Um, yeah, last week we covered it. Did you? Okay, so did you really think, as we were recording our last session, looking at looking back at this past week, did you really think this would happen? Being quarantined or being locked down? Like just everything that's happened, the escalation and how seriously it's being taken. I figured we'd do some escalation. I mean, if you look at how other countries are doing it, I was a bit surprised that Donald Trump uh, actually responded at all, but it would be dumb not to. Why were you surprised he responded? Uh, he's been pretty him not to respond. He's been pretty slow with this. He's been pretty slow with the response. It's a very diplomatic way of saying it. Well, it's uh, it's true though. I mean, it's uh, it's a very true and accurate way of saying it. he's been slow to respond uh, to this particular outbreak. Now, you can claim any motivation you want, but the net-net result, it's not about motivations, it's about results. Not about ideas, Johnny. It's about action. Right. Sure. Sure. Man of the people has spoken. Yeah. Speaking of which, one thing from working at home for this entire week. Wait, did you work at home this entire week? No, no. So, because I work for uh, our parent company, a U.S. company, so I think it was Wednesday when Trump... uh, made the announcement that mm-hmm. our CEO said that we, we are free to start working from home. Yeah, so we've been working home all week. I started ordering HelloFresh boxes. How's that? They're, they're pretty good, they're pretty good. I mean, they're just grocery delivery, they're not meal delivery. 
Wait, so they still do grocery need... delivery? I thought there was just meal delivery, like meal that you prep. Oh, yes. Well, that's what that's sorry. My key distinction between meal delivery and grocery delivery is that you have to actually do the prep for grocery delivery because they're not giving me like a pre-cooked meal. Mm. Right. So, yes. And okay, maybe that's what everyone calls meal delivery, though. But yeah, so I've been doing that. I'll send you some pictures that food has turned out pretty well. But yes, also, though, I am getting cabin fever stuck in this apartment. I had to go out yesterday just to get shopping for like coffee and some supplies just so I could leave the house and just so I can return some packages. Being stuck in all day meetings feels like my work never ends. I, you know, I, I worked uh, remotely for 18 months. Yep. That's, that's a preview of what's to come, right? Um, it's a bit uh, jarring when you spend all your day just on the phone, on the phone, on the phone. And uh, it actually gave me an interesting idea which is mm-hmm. if there is a continued rise of work from home, I think at the end of the day, you still need some human contact. You still need a reason to go out, right? Well, you're not allowed to have any human contact or a reason to go out. Or do you mean post, under normal, post-crisis? Under normal circumstances, uh-huh. right? when we go back to post-coronavirus, mm-hmm. you know, for folks that do work from home on a regular basis, I thought that'd be interesting. How do you how do you enable that? How do you enable them? You know, every, you know, you're spending most of the day in meetings on the phone, you know, video helps, but not everybody turns on the video. It's just, if you're always just on the, vo- uh, on your phone, at the end of the day, you'd want to have some human contact under normal you mean with your, you mean with your colleagues or you mean just having a social life, social life, like in your surrounding, right? Cause most times if you're working fully remote, <laughs> you're pretty far away from your office. What is so funny? You're basically saying, how can we get people to have a social life, Johnny? Sure. If you want to interpret How do we productize this? That's, <laughs> hey, I'm just saying that there's a problem here. I believe Meetup tried to do that. Uh, the whole, I have no friends in the new town, help me find friends. Slash, I'm introverted and I have no friends, help me find friends. <laughs> yeah, but Meetup, Meetup works for... Uh, meetup works kind of for everybody yeah this is a bit more targeted but anyways just that was just a thought but i think it is an interesting um experiment that's going on right now right well what i was thinking was like a work from home kit so this is after working from home for this past week i got so uncomfortable in my home office setup because this is not just where i'm used to spending eight hours so i've gone on amazon and purchased a whole bunch of things there's this mic of course for the podcast uh, but then I purchased a desk, standing desk converter that sits on my desk and then can push my uh, set up to a standing. Uh, I bought like two kettlebells for exercise because there's no gym uh, to use and now may not be able to go outside. We already have this elliptical back here. Wait, so yeah. But you you have a gym in your building. Yes. Your complex. You can't yes. get it? I prefer that too. I see. It's like, yes, gym, the one place everyone is sweating and touching everything. Just as you were talking, I almost had an, I have this idea to pivot our topic for today and talk about how you've been adjusting to work from home. Cause I think, that's Oh no, that's just, that's just going to be the pre-show. Are you kidding me? We're going to have like a three hour show. One and a half hours is the pre-show. Oh my gosh. The good thing is our topic is fairly timeless video games. So we could, we could definitely talk about that anytime. It's not as if 2000 to 2009 is in a hurry to not end. Yeah. I think 2020, I think we're all ready for 2020 to end though. Meh. It depends on whether it's going to get better or worse. Stock market has gone down quite a bit. 
Yeah. So, 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 all right, all right, let's go back. Let's go back. Mm -hmm. So some of our, what's happened this week? There has been an oil war between Saudi and Russia. Oh yeah. Uh, there was Yahoo mobile. Mm -hmm. You did send me the super peer. There was that uh, link I just shared with you. I just saw where now hackers are starting to target um, people because they're working from home. This is why I'm on a wired account. You're what? I'm on a wire directly into my modem right now. How does that help you? Well, not having a wireless account helps, but other than that. But you'd be wireless to your own network. I, I'm just sitting here. No, no. I, what's, how does being wired to the internet help you be more secure than wireless if it's still the same network? Because I, don't, because I don't have the stupid admin, uh, what's it called? The, the standard password for all Linksys routers is Linksys admin, and then, or it's admin admin. I mean, that's the standard password for all Linksys accounts. So is this your way of telling the world that you haven't changed your password? No, I changed that thing. The fact that I know that that's the standard password for all Linksys accounts means I'm one of those people who actually went and changed the password for their Linksys account. Okay, fair enough, fair enough. But yeah, so the world started working from home. There's an oil war. Mm -hmm. Yahoo, Verizon's trying to make Yahoo relevant. Mm -hmm. Trying to be relevant by pushing the Yahoo brand. I'm not sure if they're trying to make Yahoo relevant or they're just trying to resurrect. What was that thing that was Yahoo Mobile? So the story we're talking about is Yahoo Mobile uh, released this new cheap mobile option called Yahoo Mobile. But I believe that's just a reskin of what was that system called again? Visible? Visible, yes. Their existing uh, service. That begs the question, which was, why is Yahoo... Okay, I can see it. Yahoo is a more famous name, I would say, than Visible. So I guess Verizon is just going, hey, we have these properties. We might as well leverage them. Right. I wonder though why they didn't leverage AOL for this purpose. Or maybe they have in the past and that just didn't make news. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know. Because I'm not sure what type of clientele that you're going to get with the Yahoo name that you wouldn't get with the AOL name. Uh, I feel like Silicon Valley would just flock to the service. Really, I would say, I'm not sure if Yahoo has ever has been representing anything of Silicon Valley for the past two decades. Uh, Do you remember Yahoo comment threads? Just like anything in a Yahoo comment, you go see the same article on, uh, on CNN or anything else, you read those comments. You go to Yahoo, it's a cesspool of, uh, of the most like vile, racist, sexist, uh, homophobic topics you can possibly find. <laughs> Well, one, I was being uh, sarcastic, but yes, uh -huh. it is. I don't know. I don't know. Who, why would they do it? Why would they do this? Well, yeah, oh, you already built the product. You already, I, when you create a new wireless carry, you already went through all the legal stuff in order to do so. You might as well leverage what you already paid for. So they're essentially reskinning an existing service with a more uh recognized name i mean i guess of the two aol has the older clientele and yahoo has i would assume uh if hopefully not not just the people who make those comments uh but other people as well right right so yes michael i think that's i'm really curious to know how your day-to-day -day has been going and uh -huh. how you compare it how you compare this week to your previous week or whenever was the last time you were fully in the office and Johnny, cooking for myself takes so long. 
cooking for yourself? Cooking for myself takes so long, Johnny. It takes an hour. There's prep. There's cooking. There's cleaning involved. My dishwasher has never been run so much. This is the most Silicon Valley of Silicon Valley problems. However, I do realize realistically, though, I set a schedule for my normal work week that entails being able to quickly go to a cafe, grab a meal, even a quick meal, eat it in a meeting room while I'm having another meeting and continue on with my day. It is not a schedule that is optimized for actually having to prepare food, which is really interesting because you hear of the free food of these big tech companies. It's like, oh, it's a perk to get you to work more. It really is. My entire schedule is built around it. Even back when I was working at my last company that we used to go out for food, I felt my schedule was different than this. We'd not have so many 1 a.m. meetings. I'm sorry, 1 p.m. meetings. Now my entire schedule is like, I have this one hour in the middle for lunch, but when you, have to, when you don't even get to go out, when you have to make all the food yourself, that one hour is quickly not enough to make a substantial meal that's not like peanut butter and jelly. So let me see if I understand. So when, you're at, when you were in your pre-coronavirus days, uh-huh. in the office. <laughs> so last week. <laughs> last week. Two weeks ago, rather, I guess. Two weeks ago. Right. Two weeks ago. You were going to the office. You would buy mm-hmm. food on your way to, to the office. Well, we had food, but yes. What do you mean you had food? We, had ca- we have cafes with breakfast, lunch, and dinner. Okay, 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 right. So you grab food from one of the cafes, and then you go to your meeting. And then mm-hmm. for lunch, you go to the cafeteria and grab food. Yes. Yep. The key and distinction is that I, I guess the key distinction is that it didn't matter what period of time I budget. So, for example, if someone put a meeting at 1230, I was fine. I can go grab food, go to the meeting. I see. Someone put a meeting at 1 p.m. No, Easy. Sorry. Fine. I can go and get it. I can go grab food, eat, have a whole solid hour. It never takes an hour to eat all of lunch because food is prepared for you. Um, I liken this to even before working at the company I'm currently at. When at my last company, me and my team just went out for food. Still, there was a wait after you put in your order, but you didn't have to clean up. You didn't have to prepare. You didn't have to do any of these things. And you're kind of also being productive while you're out. You're talking about projects and so on and so forth. Here, I put my entire calendar, though, built around the idea that food would be quick and accessible. And this week, I think just that shock of that is not the case, certainly not the case anymore. And thus, the schedule that I keep and how I layer my meetings back to back, it just doesn't work. What has been the most surprising thing from working from home this week? I would say just how... I'll say the most personally surprising thing. I'll say the most tech surprising thing, even though it's, it shouldn't be a surprise. Most personally surprising thing of just how physically painful it is to sit and not even stand and not even walk around for the most majority of the day. I was greatly surprised by that. Like I said, that's why I had to get the standing desk converter. That's why I had to just walk outside. There's another person on my team that lives in my apartment complex. On Friday, we had a scrum meeting. I was like, let's just go to a common area and we'll take the we'll take the video call standing outside we just have to go somewhere i think that's been the most personally surprising the Mm. most technologically surprising thing for me and this is not a surprise but it's a surprise of how bad and how little we've come is that video conferencing technology for the most part sucks why is that I think, well, actually, I was reading some articles. So because of the rise of the forced work from home, 
you see so many articles around this now of work from home technology. But we don't have the optimal bandwidth for video by compression. So we do that to in order to uh, deal with the multitudes of bandwidths, we compress the hell out of everything. When you compress the hell out of everything, you're sacrificing both resolution and motion. And then if you're trying to write on a board, that's terrible. So for example, if you were trying to whiteboard something with me right now, because of how compressed this video is, it's a terrible experience for me. Next part of that, fixed cameras. Realize that fixed camera perspective, it just feels very constrictive when you're forced to, when you're forced to work from home. At work, we can control the cameras in the other rooms. On our remote systems, we have no such ability, of course. So it's kind of like you're stuck with one single perspective where naturally you would move your head around and get different perspectives. So what I'm hearing from you is that Netflix has to get its act together and that awesome video compression technology it's using to, to stream 4K, 2K into our, our uh, homes, right? Has to partner up with like Facebook and their cool portal tech of being able to, to move the camera around following you in a natural way and come up with a work from home solution. But that's not the problem though, right? It's not downstream, it's uploading. Because upload speeds tend to be way slower than downloading speeds. That's true. And so why is that? Why is like, you know, they're always bragging download speeds of 300, one gig, what have you. But then you go look at the fine print and the upload is always like a fraction, right? It's like you want to consume stuff for the internet, but you don't want to create stuff for the internet. Well, I think there's, there's both sides. There's, I mean, there's the technical side of it, which is, of course, going from a central node to multi-nodes and going down is just faster than going from a distributed node back to a central node. <clears throat> However, I think the other realistic side of it as well is there's very little business, uh, business need or business advantage to having blindingly fast upload speeds because there's not that many types of use cases where upload speed benefits more than download speed. I mean, there's us when we're uploading video online or when uploading sound and uh, sound and syncing. But for the most part as consumers, you want download and download is the most important thing. Consumer upload, there's not that much you do in your day to day that's upload speed intensive outside of just pulling requests. True. But now we're, we're talking about, you know, through an extended work from home, mm -hmm. right? If you, if I want to share my screen and have a whiteboard, it's paint. It's uh, as you were saying, it's not the greatest experience right now. Mm -hmm. But I don't think you can control that without controlling the ISPs because there is technical limitations as well. Right. But again, what uh, I don't know. That's what I'm asking. What art do you know what these technical limitations are? Like, I get it that you don't need to have fast upload speed. But no, beyond that, I mean, if you think about how the internet works, there's central servers, and then there's each of the ISPs, and there's each of our own central nodes, and then there's each of our own wireless nodes. So if you pass big, if you pass a packet downstream to that, there's caching every level down in order to try to optimize for speed going down. And yeah. in general, there's one source going to multi-nodes. However, when each of these small nodes now, it's just a reverse graph transversal at that point. It's much harder. When you have to go from one of your nodes, you are generating the source and then you're going up all of the small nodes up to the main server, down, uh, down again to the other side and the other side. I think what actually, I did, we talked about this in our remote work episode. 
will make this better, I think, is not a better camera compression or video compression. It's a better shared whiteboard or better shared collaborative space or more natural collaborative space. Stream that or don't even stream that. Do like what Google Docs does when you, there's uh, collaborative concurrent editing of something. Add voice, even add crappy video to that. And there's just a lot of things as well, paradigms. I remember, for example, WebEx, I'm not sure if Zoom has this. You could ping to raise your hand to say, hey, you want to speak, and the host would see that. A lot of systems don't have this. Like Blue Jeans does not have this. That's what we use at our company. It's, it's pretty painful. Mm. <clears throat> so plus with latency, you get a bunch of, oh, hey, oh, wait, oh, you go ahead. Oh, blah, blah, you know, <laughs> you get a lot of those. <laughs> so... What I'm also getting at from this is our continued uh, goal of building a remote first company where we're now coming up with what do we need to set up a work from home kit, right? I know. We should, we should build the remote company to enable remote companies. Hey, there's plenty of opportunity. They're, they're seeing a lot of demand right now. Mm -hmm. It actually be interesting to, you know, building on this, given that we had a remote, uh, remote work episode this extended uh, coronavirus situation it'd be interesting to see who are the remote companies in terms of like one of course who's the remote companies but also who are the ones that are providing remote tools right mm -hmm. and what space are they playing in? i think that'd be pretty interesting uh, uh research i think likewise as well we talked about this briefly but post this coronavirus, if there's a recession, if there's a downturn or something else, you mentioned before that coming out of the great recession of 2008, a lot of companies sprang up, a different culture, a different paradigm kind of uh, came into being as millennials became uh, the, went into their money-making years. It'd also be interesting after we've had a little more time, I think this will require much more research to also think about, okay, if we do have a downturn or at least this coronavirus or COVID-19 lasts for a longer period of time, what type of cultural changes and what type of business changes will happen as a result? That, yes, absolutely, absolutely. But, but yes, so other news, speaking of economic downturn, other news of the week. So Saudi is apparently trying to cause the downfall of Russia again by having an oil price war. Did you see that? I did see that, but I, but I read the other perspective, which is Russia is trying to take advantage so that they can uh, um, hit the U.S. Well, yes. Okay. So it's the, the entire thing is, I believe, Russia is not an OPEC, right? OPEC is the, uh, the large conglomerate that's, uh, that Saudi Arabia is in. Yes. But I think, what is it, six months ago or sometime last year, it seems that the Russians and OPEC, you know, which includes Saudi Arabia, had made a deal. Mm-hmm. Uh, to keep prices at a certain level. Yep. Um, and I think, well, l let me ask you this. Maybe we already had this discussion, but what caused the drop in price in the first place in oil? Oh, so right now, there's so, so there was the natural and then there's the unnatural. Right. So the natural, what happened was, if you think about it right now, what's going on is decrease in demand, people going out less, uh, less airlines flying and everywhere. So there's less overall demand. But the unnatural thing that of course happened was OPEC and Russia could not get a different type of deal worked out. 
So OPEC just, so Saudi Arabia through Saudi Aramco just said, okay, we're going to start flooding the market with supply. Right. Even though demand is down, we're going to flood with supply. So I think, I'm not sure is gas down to, is oil down to 35 or 25 or something like that. But I remember the numbers being that under $40, I believe, uh, Russia does not make a profit. Under $80, Saudi Arabia does not make a profit. And under $53, the United States does not make a profit from their energy exports. So yeah, the, the oil industry, there's, I haven't dug too much into all the ramifications. I'm just now starting to look into oil companies and big oil. But what seems to, to likely happen, unless Russia and Saudi Arabia can get back on the same table of deals, is there's just going to be a price war where they lower uh, oil prices until they can starve one or the other out. And I believe Saudi Arabia, they both said if Saudi Arabia is willing to take on debt, they can last six years at this. Russia with their existing coffers can only last six years on this or somewhere around there. Six and years? It's just, yes. And it's just America and the smaller oil companies that will suffer a lot. So probably if this drags on, we'll just see things like Shell and BP and Exxon buy up all of the small companies. You already saw this Occidental Oil, which was kind of a weekly run oil company to begin with, slashed their dividends tremendously and slashed their projections tremendously. And their stock tanked as a result. Yeah, what I've been reading is uh, part of it could be Russia's kind of revenge on the U.S. for I think some of the sanctions, but a lot of the shale companies with the kind of the rise of fracking in the U.S. Right, U.S. Mm-hmm. became like the biggest producer and exporter. Yes. We became an exporter of we became a net exporter for the first time I believe in 2018. Right. So, but a lot of these companies are highly leveraged. They have a lot of debt. So, you know, once they're not able to make money, they have, you know, they're going to have to be bankrupt. And then mm-hmm. there's going to be a cascading effect of, you know, of course, workers being laid off. I mean, here, even in Canada and Alberta, you know, there was an oil boom and then it's kind of collapsed. So there's been a lot of concern there. And now this is just going to further exasperate that, right? So there's going to be a cascading effect on the economy on that side. So. I guess an interesting question from our take on this is, okay, renewables, power walls, power cells that, you know, that Tesla power farm, I don't remember which country they put it in, but it was, it was widely successful. Uh, lithium ion production or, or other forms of, I've, I've heard like potassium ion is potentially other future forms of battery storage. If this drags on, will this actually only accelerate the rise of non-fossil fuel adoption? I, yeah, I think the world's already marching in that direction anyways, right? I don't see why this would further accelerate it. Well, if there's two sides of it, when oil prices are really down, electric cars get bought less. So this goes back to our original thought of, are they buying Teslas or are they buying electric cars? Oh, I see. Yes, yes. But the other side of it is if a bunch of energy companies are massively impacted, might you see an even larger push to uh, thinking about renewable energies or long-term energy storage? Yeah, I think there's a lot of, again, I think there's a lot of interest there and I think they'll just continue anyways, but I don't know. That's some, some interesting questions. There's a lot of things we'll have to be really paying attention to in the next couple of months. Yep. I think the other interesting thing is if the numbers coming out of China is true, and their extreme measures that they took actually 
curtailed the spread of uh, COVID-19 in China, then Tesla's actually had a great advantage because the factories that are down or their, or their factories that are down, their big new Shanghai factory will be right back up and right back out to churning uh, out cars again. That's true. China's quickly recovering. They're slowly reopening it up. Um, so I think a lot of the manufacturing that was initially hit and stopped and there was a lot of concerns of the supply chain should mm-hmm. be fixed. But, but demand is still going to be... Well, dem- I, I, I've read multiple different things. The supply chain, I think a lot of people think the supply chain is going to be fine. Consumer demand is going to be somewhat delayed, but electronic consumer demand, I mean, we're probably, that's around Christmas time and that's around whenever Apple releases their new phone time anyway. So hopefully by then we'll have curtailed uh, COVID-19. So let me, okay. Yeah, which actually brings us to an interesting point, right? What are the going to be the ramifications of COVID-19 and more mm-hmm. before that. So you, you said this is the first week that you had to work from home. I don't think I'm it's here the, for a month. What's that? I'm here for a month. They told us that until further noticed, expect to be working from home. But was it a mandate that you're forced to work from home? Cause I saw Twitter, for example, told all their employees to actually work from home. A few other companies and, have others are just recommending it. So have you been recommended? Like for example, my company, has said, you know, if you're feeling sick or actually no questions asked, you can work from home. But it's not like we are telling you to work from home. We have been recommended to work from home unless it's a business emergency or you have to do your work in the office. Likewise, there are some sites where the governments there are more, uh, more extreme such that they're mandating work from home. So, for example, I believe our UK office is going to be a mandated work from home. Okay, so... Every office is different, but at the very least, you've been recommended to work from home. Mm-hmm. Our Seattle office, I believe, is mandated because yeah. that's definitely the central point of the most coronavirus-related deaths in the United States. Yeah, if, yeah. Google, um, Microsoft, uh, Amazon there have like all told their employees to work from home. So you guys have been told for a month. Interesting. Well, originally it was well, review Friday. Uh, this was last Friday. Then they... On Wednesday, they said, okay, we'll probably expect until around early April. And then they said, until further notice. There's just, there's just no more information they can provide in guidance. Oh, likewise, question of the impact of this. Are your, your parents are still in Belgium, right? Yep. So no travel in and out of Europe. It's, how's Canada's travel with, uh, with Europe? Uh, I think Canada hasn't stopped anything. I think as of... Friday, they said they're going to start limiting international flights to certain number of airports, but they haven't declared what those airports are. So they've been mm-hmm. telling, they've been, they put out an advisory to Canadians to not travel. I think this is around the time, like we're right around spring break, right? March. So a lot of people were, it seems a lot of people go to the States during mm-hmm. this time, like warmer weather, of course. So I think they were trying to curtail that. But it was, again, it wasn't a ban. It was just a recommendation that you don't travel. Um, and then they were also saying whoever is out traveling outside, they were telling Canadians to come back because, again, they're going to be limiting airports for international flight. And they were kind of discussing maybe closing the U.S. border, but it doesn't seem like that's happened yet. Yeah, so I know, if you, I know that my little sister's school there have now canceled classes. 
and they've told them to go to go home and they're not coming back after spring break. I know Stanford's done the same. If you saw Stanford the, had a Stanford had a uh, announced I think yesterday an undergrad mm-hmm. with coronavirus. Yeah, I mean that's that's not overly surprising uh, considering the Bay Area. And then what was it? I think it's oh yeah, you saw of course the National Basketball Association they suspended their season. The XFL, that new football league, canceled their season straight up. The Masters was postponed. March Madness was canceled, which I'm not sure if that's – maybe that's happened once before during wartime, but I'm not sure when's the last time they canceled March Madness. How long has March Madness been going on that they would have canceled during a wartime? March Madness? Hold on. Let me, let me take a look at this. It's been – it started in 1939. Oh, 1939? Yeah. Oh, wow. Never Never mind, that's a long time. I didn't realize. And I don't know how many cancellations there have ever been. It's hard to say, but at least in the in the modern format, apparently, that they've had since 1979, it's never been canceled. I can't immediately see the data for before then, but apparently it happened throughout the war. Hmm. So I'm not sure if this is the first time it's ever been canceled but it may be the first, it's certainly the first time in the modern era that they call it that's ever been canceled. Oh, also, of course, a bunch of movies. I think Black Widow got pushed back. Uh, Fast, and Furious, Fast and Furious 9 got pushed back. A year. A year. Oh, sorry, Black Widow didn't get pushed back. They're thinking no. a bit get pushed back. Fast yeah. and Furious 9 got pushed back a year. James Bond to November, Quiet yep. Place. I don't think they even announced one. They just said... We're pushing it back. Yep. Um, this, this is having... Either we're going to have the most massive amount of consumer spending ever in Q4, or this is going to be a really, really bad well, year or so for I, a lot of these companies. Yeah. My, 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 my current thoughts is... Yesterday, I was looking through Twitter. So, um, but I saw two people... I don't know what industry. I just saw two people who announced that they've been laid off. They're software engineers. Right? They were mm. looking for new roles. They were posting to her saying, hey, my company announced layoffs. I'm looking for a new role. And again, these are software engineers, right? To mm-hmm. not even speak to the impact on uh, you know, non-software engineers. But you're, you're already seeing an impact, right? And I think it's only going to get worse. And so what I think is really interesting to, to discuss is, okay, I think we'll be, this is going to be an extended work from home. I know most yep. companies have announced like two weeks or a week or at the end of the month. I, my feeling is it will be extended. Like, what are your thoughts? Do you think like in a month you'll be like, come back to the office? Oh, no. No, I think, people will be I think it may be summertime. It may be like June before people go back to the office because there is still that thought and it's, it's not been validated. It's still part thought, part hypothesis, part hope that like most flu viruses, this COVID-19 virus will somewhat die down during the summer. And at the very least, that will, it may not go away because it may just be waiting until fall and winter for when flu season comes back. But at the very least, that'll give a longer period of time for all of these drug companies going through trials right now to put their potential vaccines and uh, different, yeah, vaccinations and different treatments through human testing and to try to get that approved through the process uh, of the FDA and then through uh, clinical trials into mass production, hopefully by winter and springtime. Right. I was also hearing that, which 
given the pivot that we made from gaming to to coronavirus why why oh i have a wonderful out? segue to go back into gaming by the way oh, what's that i have a wonderful segue to go back into gaming but we can oh. do that at uh, we can do that in the hour sure so why why does the flu die down in the summer and comes back in the fall because there's heat. also that i've also been hearing that concern oh straight up heat so you're saying probably people won't come back to the office till june so then mm-hmm. that's that that was the other thing right so of course people have to work right yeah you mean you're fortunate enough to have kept your job and you're working in an industry that's not losing jobs you'll be going back to work or you know continue to work from home whatever makes you comfortable right but there are places where we we don't want to be going right i don't think people will be in a rush to go back to cinemas for example mm. this is just my thoughts mm-hmm. people may not necessarily be in a rush to go to back to restaurants yes right? so there yes there could be this could be you could see the rise of not just remote work but also the the continued rise of of these delivery businesses yeah. oh right? did you see that article specifically on the impact on chinese restaurants potentially i did not see that there's a few apparently there's the brooklyn chinatown or one of the chinatowns in new york right yeah. now there's so little in terms of foot traffic to restaurants this is true of restaurants everywhere right but of course the difference and there are, we've talked about this in the past but not on the show of course and there's a lot of different socioeconomic aspects of this but the difference of an italian restaurant not having foot traffic the italian restaurants tend to be for the most part outside of little italy tend to be the high end restaurants and there are very very few chi- high end chinese restaurants that get taken seriously or allowed to exist in america not allowed legally but just allowed culturally so a lot of these restaurants could be horribly detrimentally impacted through the both the combination of people not going to restaurants in general and some post uh, coronavirus anti chinese uh, xenophobia as well i think what's like i actually noticed this um from th- through my work for example um so i think it was back in late january early february where people in you know vancouver airport were already wearing masks mm-hmm. uh people stopped going to restaurants you know richmond has a huge chinese population and i was already th- reading then that you know some some restaurants were closing shop some you know, there was one restaurant that was supposed to go through renovation but end up closing early because people were not showing up anymore right mm-hmm. and they were laying off uh, um employees and that was you know back before like i think it's only now in the past week you know in our last episode it was saturday that italy had just announced that they were closing the northern area of italy and then by monday they basically shut down the entire country i was going to say yeah the whole country shut down now yeah and then us announced on wednesday you know state of emergency at the federal level but by that time there was already i think over 20 governors who had announced state of emergencies for their respective states so it, yeah it's it's like the last the last forces the only other times in in history where a force has been able to shut down italy they've usually brought armies with them <laughs> china just had to send a few people out <laughs> but uh, so, how did how did it spread to italy was it through an italian person visiting china was it through an expat from china how did it actually spread to italy well so that's what i was going to ask you but not in the case of italy but like in the states but i think i think the the i mean there's several facets you can look at it but one is there was just a slow response from the beginning 
right? Mm -hmm. There's a slow response. And in today's global economy, like how many flights does Apple have to China on a daily basis? Point is, that's just Apple, right? And then of course, all the other guys as well, I can only imagine. So I think by the time people started realizing that this was an issue, right? God knows how many countries had already entered and you're seeing that now, right? And then say you travel from, I mean, you traveled to China in December, not yep. saying you, <laughs> you brought it over, but that's just an example, right? Then you came back to the Bay. Then you came to Vancouver, right? Where else mm -hmm. have you traveled? You haven't traveled anywhere else, have you? No, just those. I was going to travel to the UK, but then that week I was going to travel, we put in, uh, we canceled all work trips. Right. Exactly. Right. And that's just the example of, of you and your travel. Now imagine like all the people, like, you know, when you're in plane, you're in the airport, the, like just in that environment, how many people and where they're going. Right. It's pretty, I mean, it's a very connected world, right? But what is, I was going to say, what is most, what is more, so I looked up numbers. I remember last time we were talking about this, we were just going off the top of some articles that we've seen before. So I actually looked at the numbers comparing COVID-19 to other coronaviruses or other uh, bad viruses in the past history. And outside of Spanish flu and outside of the Black SARS. Plague, of course, mm -hmm. this is most comparable to SARS. SARS was more deadly, but it seemed to have spread just, or it seems to have been just as uh, easily spread. This seems much more spreadable than H1N1. This seems much more spreadable than MERS. Right. But this one is more spreadable and less lethal than SARS thus far, but right. definitely more than all of the others at the, around the same rate. So it's interesting because SARS did happen. And I guess the good thing, if any good can be taken from this, is that very clearly the world has learned their lesson in how bad it can be because we did not see this response. Like we talked about last time, we did not see this response of countries locking themselves down of quarantines, of governments banning travel. We did not see this with SARS. No. So hopefully this, ex this incredibly extreme response will result in an overall saving of lives, hopefully. You know, that's the... Um, so I, I, I remember reading and watching the news about SARS when it happened, but it always felt like something that was happening in like a distant country. Right. But with this, it, I mean, again, right, like late January, people were already reacting here in the Vancouver, Metro Vancouver area. Right. So there's definitely a closer to home. And I think for I don't think a lot of people in the States were taking it seriously until that NBA player got sick. Uh, mm -hmm. Rudy. Yeah. Rudy um, Gobert. Yeah. And then he, you know, like NBA started canceling games. Uh, people at, I think if, even at first, I think for March Madness, they were first saying like only staff and family would be there, but like nobody else. And we'll just yep. you know, watch it online. But then they, they, they just said like, no, that's not going to happen. We're canceling. Right. So I think I mean, here there's an element of like, now it's in my back door, right? Now it's in my neighbor and now it's in my, my own house. I mean, I think an interesting side of that is as well is if you think about it too, in 2002, there was a very big difference, both in the amount of connectedness of our world, for sure. Also in how aware people were of what was going on, how much international travel was going on, uh, and the role of China in the world in 2002 was very different from the role of China in 2020. So there's, I think, also, we, were I think we were just as 
dependent on Chinese manufacturing back then. Right. But Chinese tourism wasn't as big as it was now, as it is now. There was not that much. Uh, the immigration waves that have happened since have been much more. There is just much. There's just much more people with one way or another a connection to China, not necessarily even uh, being born or having family there, but working there. Because if you think about it now, all of the big hardware companies, as we we're saying before, Apple or Samsung, or I know even Facebook has Oculus, Microsoft has a China office, a Shanghai office. There's so much more now interfacing with the country that there's a lot more people with connections to China than back when it was just the country that you saw was manufacturing all your shoes, for example. Right. And likewise, so I, all these articles I've read, if you type in SARS, you see like all of these different countries that are hit very fast or hit very hard by SARS, they all took lessons. And now their response is much more extreme than it was when they were dealing with SARS in the past. All right, Johnny. Speaking to, uh, to make our this week's podcast not so sad sounding. And speaking of things that people do when they're working from home, Johnny. Video games. Oh, I see. So this is how you've been spending the week. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. One, Actually, one screen for your, for, your, for your video meeting with your boss and the other one for your, hey, Fortnite. For, yes, for whatever game it would be. Now, speaking of which, so we've been wanting to do this particular episode for a while, which is we both are, or at least were at one point, I think we'll find avid gamers. Uh, or at least common gamers. So what we want to do... Gamer, but go ahead. Yes, and what we want to do is we want to go look back at some of the, our, most, our most favorite games from the past 20 years, because we're old farts, and thus we have that much history with games. Hey, uh, speak for yourself. In part two, we're going to talk about kind of where the video game industry is going, new creations or rather new innovations in the space new consoles new technology and where do we think the kind of the trends are going but first i want to look back go in the way back machine and say and look back at our favorite games first and for this week's episode we're just going to look at 2000 to 2009 our most favorite games from that time and talk about why all right joy so number three drum roll is Grand Theft Auto, Vice City. Okay. Now, did you play GTA Vice City? I did play GTA Vice City. All right. So, actually, which one of the GTA, post-GTA 3 games did you play? Do you play all the way up to 4, or do you also play 5? I have yet to play 5. It was one of the games I did really want to play. It looked pretty interesting, because instead of, like... Because up to that point, up to 4, you always played one character. Mm-hmm. And you followed them. I think 4 had some interesting dynamics where you could, depending on whether you, like, you killed the character or to let them live, the, end, the ending was different. But yep. I think it was the fifth one where they actually had three different characters with three yes. different stories that brought them together. So I thought that was interesting. But then yes. I got, you know what it was? was I, uh, this is a side, but I, I got, and I need to go find this game, but I got a, um, not Left for Dead, but The Last of Us. Yep. Don't ask me why. It came with my PlayStation. And I was like, I'm going to play this game. And I started playing it. And I realized it was a horror game. Yep. About that. Kind and of. I was just yep. like, no, not my style. But I was so curious to find out what happens. because It's a good game. 
But I went on YouTube and found this recording of a guy, guy playing through the game. And I did like three X or six X speed. And I just was like, okay, what happens? Just like, what, what, how does the story end? But I didn't want to play it. So anyways, why is this relevant? Because GTA takes- I was gonna say, how is this relevant? GTA is a, is a game that sucks up a lot of time. And if you're like okay. really compulsive, obsessive with getting everything and cracking every nook and cranny of the game. Ah, uh, yes, I forgot you're one of those types. Yes. So I was just like, I'm not going to buy this game because I will not do anything more productive in my life. But I wanted to go watch it on uh, YouTube. So, Were you one of the uh, ones that in GTA 3 went and found all 100 hidden packages? What's that? No, 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 I didn't. That's the thing. Okay. I've never finished a GTA game. Okay. Oh, so no, wait. So I did finish San Andreas. But um, so, Vice City, I, I played Vice City. That was a mm -hmm. pretty, uh, that was the first one in the, you know, that came out in 2002. Yes. I think, was, that was not, was that the first 3D? No, GTA, GTA 3 was. Okay. And then GTA 3 was? It's out of New York. Okay. GTA 3 didn't make my list, despite the fact that it's the game I played more. I just liked Vice City probably more than everything. The setting, the story. I mean, the story is basically Scarface. And beyond that, do you remember the soundtrack of GTA Vice City? I do not. It was all 80s new wave. So here's another interesting thing um, to kind of mention along the way. While we're in the topic of GTA. GTA, as we know, just is a very ambitious game series. Yep. <laughs> very controversial, too. But... I was just looking up at GTA 3. So GTA 3 was released in 2001. Mm -hmm. Grand Theft Auto 2 was released in 99. Yep. And then Vice City was released in uh, 2002. Yep. And then uh, San Andreas was released in 2004. Yes. And then what was after San Andreas? That was 4? GTA 4? Four. 4. And GTA 4 was released uh, in 2008. You see the, the lengthening of time. And yeah. GTA 5 was released in 2013. Yeah. I think the thing was GTA 3, 4, uh, sorry, oh, GTA 3, Vice City, and San Andreas were all PS2. So I think they were all within the same generation and console, and their technology didn't change too much. Whereas GTA 4 was the first PS3 game. And then GS, uh, or Grand Theft Auto 5, was, I believe, was there a PlayStation 5? Is there a PlayStation 5 or we have not reached there? We're a PlayStation 4. All right, PlayStation 4. Uh, sorry, yeah, GTA, uh, GTA 4 was the first PlayStation 3 game and then GTA 5 was the PlayStation 4 game. So, yeah. they, so they've been changing fully their technology stack uh, with the two later releases. That's true. Um, but yeah, Vice City. Vice City was... Um, so let me ask you. I, mm -hmm. I, I remember playing it. But from, you know, I think you, you seem to have played also three. And I think I played three as well. But why Vice City? What did it bring to the GTA series? Why, was, why is it near number three? And why is it not few, number one? I think there's a few things. So one is, and you'll find this, I think, if you see with all, this, with all of the ones that I chose, a little bit of a thing with me is I play video games mostly for the story, a little bit for the gameplay. But if it has a good soundtrack, you've, you've got me. So with this, with number two as well, as I'll talk about, is GTA Vice City had a great story. Again, it was basically stealing from, uh, it was still the uh, still Scarface, the entire plot of Scarface, basically. And whereas 
GTA 3 was Goodfellas and with those mob movies. For whatever reason, I think I started watching those mobster movies like Godfather and all those things after uh, 2002 uh, or after, the, after GTA 3 had already come out. And I was a kid back then anyways. But I remember watching Scarface. I don't know why, 2002, 2003-ish era me. And I don't think I played it in 2002 because I played it whenever it came out for PC which meant this would have been like 2003 at the earliest. But whatever was that time, Tony Montana and Scarface referenced a lot more in hip hop than mob movies are. So I, for whatever reason, had seen Scarface and Al Pacino. And I really liked that as an actor. So I really liked that story. And then of course, 80s new wave music and 80s new music in general. Uh, I was really a huge fan of, even up until when you met me in grad school, I was still a big fan of 80s new wave music. So I think that some gameplay elements like the introduction of motorcycles was really cool. The introduction of boats, just that Miami uh, and the Miami and Miami Vice type of atmosphere of GTA Vice City. That's, that's why I really liked it. I didn't play it a whole lot. So not that much. I think I spent more time with San Andreas. Mm-hmm. But talk I, about that. I liked San Andreas, though, for whatever reason. By the time I played it, I mean, San Andreas, the music choice, that's basically my, what I play on the radio normally anyways. Right. Uh, it was NWA. Was there any Tupac in San Andreas? I don't think so. It was technically before Tupac. I thought it was technically before Tupac. Or set before Tupac. Uh, that's a good question. Where is it? Um, I mean, I know it's set in basically California and Nevada. It was set in basically, it, I mean, it's basically. Oh, it takes- yeah. So 1980s. Uh, 1990s crack epidemic. Yep. It basically takes some like Boys in the Hood uh, was one of the big uh, influences of GTA San Andreas. San Andreas Tupac. Do you know 50 Cent was supposed to voice CJ? No, I think, uh, yeah, I do remember 50 Cent being supposedly a part of it. And no, I think he was, Samuel yeah. Jackson was in it, right? Yeah, Samuel Jackson was the crooked police. Because yes. it's, you know, it's taking from uh, 1980s and 1990s movies about growing up in Inglewood and Compton of course the police are crooked as hell so (laughs) has to have a crooked police yeah yeah, um, what what was supposed to happen was 50 Cent was supposed to voice the main character CJ except 50 Cent refused to be to give his voice to any video game where he was not the character himself so 50 Cent actually came out with like two video games that were where he was the main character and uh one of the one of the what's it called? One of the missions was you, there was that terrible rapper that you met while you're working at the clucking bell. Mm-hmm. And he was supposed to represent Ja Rule. Oh, <laughs> um, I'm just looking at the, this website behind the voice actors. Mm-hmm. Um, so some of the prominent ones, game, the game, the rapper, Who was that, he that might also been the... another reason that he didn't want to. I don't know if that was 2004. Was that, what was character it? was game in that? Uh, uh, B- B-Dub. I don't remember him. I, I don't also remember him. B-Dub was, uh, no, no, that's it. It's just, and then there was, of course, Samuel L. Jackson, Officer Tenpen, uh, Tenpenny. Uh, Ice-T was Mad Dog. Oh, yeah, yep. Yeah, I think that's at least the names that jump out at me. Is like, Whatever reason, I feel the gameplay of San Andreas was better, was the best of that entire era. But the story, just I don't remember it at all. Yeah, it was something about his brother being killed and then him coming to visit, uh, stay at his mom. 
or uh, yeah, there was. He was framed by the police for something. Yeah, and then he ended up being like, yeah. So the police were on his on his case from the get go, and then he ended up like joining the gang and helping uh, and kind of climbing up, and then you know working with that crooked cop. Yeah, it was a pretty ambitious, huge game. I remember the blind yakuza guy. Hmm. Remember him? He used to give you a lot of missions. Uh, you're, he was blind, and yet the, in your first time meeting him, he was competing against you in a street race. Oh, Woozy. Yes. I oh, actually, I guess he was a triad then. Uh, yeah, I'm not sure. I just know that was a really fun game. Mm-hmm. And it had the, the controversial uh, hot coffee mod. Yes. Which all, in all, which all in all, to like today's standards, it's, I guess it'd still be, it'd still, it'd still be caught by today's standards. It'd be what? It'd still be caught in a big deal by today's standards, I guess. Well, I think it was more just around the rating, right? Once that was discovered, they had to re-rate it and say it's adults only. That was their concern. Number two, drum roll. Fallout 3. Johnny, Fallout 3, this game I believe you played. I did play Fallout 3. My friend was really, really big into it. He's the one that introduced me to it. And Mm -hmm. I did uh, play it for a bit. Um, I didn't go through and finish. Also another very big, ambitious game with a deep message story, as I remember. But it's basically this uh, post-apocalyptic action, uh, right, where you're kind of exploring the world after something has happened you could probably speak yep. more to it yep but yes follow through so actually i realized this which is gt both gta outside of and this is talking about trends of 2000s outside of being really great games also started a trend of open world games <clears throat> so for example Fallout three it was a massive open worlds game around the same time that this not on my list but around the same time assassin's creed came out saints row came out uh, all of those open world games started coming out, and that was a new genre game type that became very popular during this time. But yes, right. Fallout 3 for me was just in general, I'm a huge fan of, I was a huge fan of action RPGs. Another game with a great soundtrack. This was the like the 50s, 60s. I still remember the theme song Ink Spots. I don't want to set the world on fire. Uh, I hunted that down on iTunes afterwards. But it was, I think this game also really appealed to me because it had a sense of dark humor, which I'm, I'm quite a big fan of. So, uh, so that was Fallout 3 for me. But yes, in general though, what, what video game genre do you fi- did you find yourself most playing during this time? I think I was still big into American style RPGs back uh, during this era or this decade. Uh, you know, during this time, I was 2008, 9. I really liked the. Well, I was again. I was a big fan of San Andreas. Mm-hmm. Uh, that was one of the few games I actually walked through the whole thing and, and finished. Um, I really liked Assassin's Creed. That was another yep. game I also finished, and it came out around the same time. It makes. Well, anyways, the second one was better, so we'll get to that. Oh, yeah. But uh, yeah, just I always appreciated the stories, right? Um, you know, there's always been like those, like Soul Calibur, you know, those games like Tekken, which are always fun with friends. Super um, Smash Brothers. Yeah, but I also think, I think part of why like these, at least these games kind of resonated with me was before the move to online, right? Like the campaign, like, I mean, 
by design, these, these games are meant to be like very long, single player, in-depth experiences, right? Very cinematic, right? A lot of cutscenes, um, and you have this whole world to discover where it's not a linear path. You can, you know, go off the beaten, beaten road and do all these other side things as, as you know, to your heart's content. Uh, but like now, if you look at it, there's not, there's a proliferation of these more, hey, we're going to give you a very simple, uh, maybe eight, nine, 10 hour single uh, player campaign. And then the rest of it is online, right? The rest yep. of that is online. Actually, speaking of which, the, there's a game that's not on my top three for this decade, but is, is there in terms of starting to kick off that trend, Call of Duty 3 Modern Warfare. Back when it was still called, when it was still numbered Call of Duties. Or sorry, Call of Duty 4 Modern Warfare. I was going to say, because you have Call of Duty Modern Warfare. Yes, it was called, oh, I forgot. Yeah, they, re, they rebooted the whole franchise and called it Modern Warfare. No, I'm talking about the original, Call of Duty 4 Modern Warfare. Yeah. Uh, which was the one that kicked off just Call of Duty becoming from mostly a World War II shooter to this big, huge, massive cultural every single year there's a new version thing that was the one where yeah the big shocking moment of call of duty modern warfare is when you were the character and they nuked the area you were in and you were crawling out of the wreckage uh, to your death that was the big shocking moment introduced the shocking moments of modern warfare series so let let me ask you this yes so Mm -hmm. call of duty 4 modern warfare the 2007 first person shooter um Mm -hmm. also one of my favorite games I actually really loved a lot of the missions. I would always just go back and play them at like different um, difficulties. difficulties. Yep. Uh, but it was also one of those games where I could play with my friends, like four people, two people, three people. That was a lot of fun, like in a LAN network. Uh, I remember doing that at my friend's uh, house. But, but here you have, uh, under honorable mention, you have Call of Duty Modern Warfare. Is this the one or is there another one? Yeah, I met Call of Duty 4 Modern Warfare. I forgot that they rebooted the Modern Warfare franchise. Yeah, they did. Because when I Google... Google just Call of Duty Modern Warfare. I come across the 2019 version, the reboot. Yep. Yeah, but, so there was Call of Duty 1 and Call of Duty 2, which I believe were both World War II. Right. And then was Call of Duty Modern Warfare Modern Call of Duty 3? or No, no. Call of, then there was Call of Duty 3, which I believe was also historical. Then it was COD 4 Modern Warfare, I believe. Yeah. I, um, yeah. Yes. So I think it looks Are like you, it doesn't. 2009 was that period where games were still very much single player or LAN. I mean, there was Counter-Strike, so I, won't, I don't mm-hmm. want to give that away. But. I mean, there was also Unreal Tournament. I remember it's, I just remembered now that the game I spent a proliferate amount of time with, because I feel between 2000 and 2009, this was, this was entering college and through that period of time and in college. Before college, I didn't play that much, but the games I did play, I remember the game that I actually played the most that didn't make this list was Unreal Tournament 2004, which was purely multiplayer, no story whatsoever. I was actually going to ask a question, though, which was with Call of Duty for Modern Warfare, do you think that it set good trends or negative trends overall? Because, yes, before you expected a single-player campaign and a rich story. You came for the, you came for the, sto- uh, the single-player, and then the multiplayer was the additional. Now, like, the games are just multiplayer, kind of like you know unreal was back in the day that's interesting so um well one i think part of the reason i really like call of duty 4 was that i had a great single player campaign i mean i don't think it was super long but 
but I really loved the missions and I loved replaying them again and again. At the same time, I also liked playing it with friends, you know, going mm -hmm. over, setting up a LAN network, playing with a few friends. Um, and even in, uh, I think in college, right, we would get it and we'd play with uh, a few, like, you know, four people on, the, on a PlayStation. Mm -hmm. um, so for me, it had, it was a good mix of both, right? You could play online. Can you play online on this one? No. Yes. There, what you could play online. I remember at least the PC version you could. I think in the Xbox, there was Xbox Live back then. So I think you could play online. Okay. Because um, I remember we would always mostly play it with, with people. Like, mm -hmm. you know, like, if you, if like you split were, screen? Yeah, split screen. Like exactly. what you used to do back in the day? <laughs> exactly. So that's, so at the same time, it, to me, it had a good mix of both, right? I could play with my friends. But at the same time, I could also play by myself and still have a lot of fun. So I think it was later that it kind of trended towards more the other way of like, let's just put some simple thing together. And that's some of the criticism. But, but what I observed as we were talking is, I think before, like around this time, 2000 to 2009, there was a period of either they were fully multiplayer games with no mm -hmm. single player component at all, or maybe like practice mode. But then there was also then on the other side, you have like the GTA Vice City, San Andreas, the Fallout 3, uh, where it's this long, expanse, open-ended world of single player game that you, you could spend hours and hours, tens of hours on, if not hundreds of hours on exploring and playing the game, right? Um, but then now what you're seeing is kind of both of these worlds combining right mm -hmm. where like i think with i think it was I think assassin's it's, creed 2 i think it's uh, combining but i think the the multiplayer has taken over more. no i agree i agree like but for example like you also like for example like with the assassin's creed series i think i think it was starting with the second one or the third one they i think it was the second one they of course it still has an awesome single player game um relatively open world um you know but at the same time you also had a multiplayer component as well right so once you finish the game it was you could still have a reason to go back and play it right mm -hmm. so i think that's actually this made me remember speaking of fun multiplayers but actually you were mentioning earlier games where your ocd kicks in and you just have to do everything do you remember splinter cell that was a game yes I also played. that was a fun game splinter did you play chaos theory i don't know there was Splinter Cell 1, Splinter Cell 2. Chaos Theory was the third Splinter Cell. Um, so Cell 2002, Pandora Tomorrow. I, um, I don't know if it was Chaos Theory or Pandora Tomorrow that I played. Do you remember a lighthouse uh, mission? Maybe. Okay, because I remember... So Chaos Theory used to grade you. So this was, this was back when stealth games were stealth games. I'm not sure how many true stealth games are still around. But Chaos Theory would grade you on how well you did. If you ever got detected, if you ever killed anyone, if you ever needed to knock anyone out, it would give you a grade. You'd only get 100% if you went through the entire mission without killing a single person, without being detected once. Oh, so right. there was so much me having, replaying every single level, timing every single NPC until I could get to the point where I figured out how I could do this and 100% for every single level. I think I replayed Chaos Theory levels more than any other video game I'd ever played. Interesting. I, I, again, I don't remember which one it was, but I remember playing it. It was a lot of fun. And then I got to one level where I just couldn't figure out what I was supposed to do. Like, I can get past it. Then afterwards, I just lost interest. Which brings me to another observation. Yes, mm -hmm. it was a, 
like 2004, 2005. Uh, you didn't go on the internet to figure out what to do next. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Well, I, not to say like you couldn't do it before. You had to I buy think, magazines. What's that? You had to buy game guides back then. Yeah. Yeah. There was game guides. There was all these things. But like now people have like section by section video walkthrough written. Like I go to IGN, like recently I was playing Star Wars and I was getting stuck or thinking like, how do I do this? Am I supposed to get past this way? And I go Google it. And then I came across IGN's like entire walkthrough of like, here's how we think you should get your upgrades. Here's where you think you can go get all these things at this level. And here's a walkthrough, like text walkthrough as well as a video walkthrough. Mm-hmm. So it's like now you're less likely to get stuck. Do you know, but do you know what ruined that for me? So the, the walkthroughs are nice, but for like RPG games where it will tell you this decision impacts the end game. Oh. That would, that would, that started kind of changing how I played through because before you would play through, you realize, Oh, which decision did, Oh, there's a decision way back in the day. And then you'd want to play through it again. But this is like, Oh, you make this decision. If you want this end, or if you want that end, if you want this person to live or that person to end. But yeah. So actually, let's go to number one for 2000 to 2009 for myself. Not sure if you play this game, but my number one game for 2000, 2009, Bioshock 1. I did. I believe I played it a bit, but I didn't really get into it. This is also a game that's very, has a lot of philosophy. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Bioshock was released in 2007 from uh, 2K Boston. Yep. 2K Games. So why, why this game? Why was so this? Uh, for why was this number one? So it was interesting. This game still has resulted in, so the, there's a few things. One, the, there's a great story in general. Two, there's very unique gameplay elements. And it's a first person shooter with a lot of interesting powers. And the ambiance, the philosophy, the world they make of Rapture was, was very, well, uh, what's it called? Enrapturing, if you will. But I still remember this game being the one game that elicited perhaps the most interesting response in video games from me. Because if you think about video games as a medium, it's a unique and interesting medium in which when you're watching a movie, you're, you're seeing characters on the screen and you're not projecting, you're watching their story. When you're in a video game, especially a first-person shooter, you're projecting yourself onto this medium. And so the story element that elicited this response from me was in Bioshock, there's these things called little sisters. And what they are, are there's these little like plasmid infused little girls who have these superpowers. Your entire thing is you save them or, or you can harvest them, but I chose to save them throughout the, throughout the game. And mm-hmm. there's this one mission where you need them to help you take uh, or like drain plasmids from people so you can go do something. I don't quite remember the story, but the key is before you had saved them, there were kind of these soulless creatures but they were invulnerable. But once you saved them, they were just normal little girls again, they were vulnerable. And you basically had an escort mission. For lack of better terms, it was an escort mission in which you had this, little, this saved little sister going around, harvesting Adam from these people. And you had to try to fight off waves of waves of different, I don't remember what the, the henchmen villains were called, but they had splicers, there we go, splicers coming at you. Mm-hmm. And this was the one... I remember this because I was in my dorm room. I was playing this game and I was fighting off these things. I had this such as visceral sensation of wanting to protect this character while fighting off all these waves that I never had before. Because usually escort missions, you hate escort missions. You loathe escort missions. You don't want to see them. 
But this one, I had such a strong reaction to wanting to not let a single one of these little sisters get hurt by these splicers coming away, which I was like, wow, this is the no, to this moment, no other game has actually elicited such a strong emotion from me in any one level. So this one wins points for um, immersion for emotions. So or immersion, I was about to say, but yes. (laughs) Well, yeah. Storytelling, the philosophy I've, like I said, I played it a little bit and then I was always curious why Bioshock, the series was held in such high regard. So I did go through and read. uh, Now, as I look at its Wikipedia, I did, I did go and read its story and, you know, the underlying philosophy that the game developers were trying to communicate. So and that's part of the reason that these uh, Bioshock series are pretty interesting. But I just wanted to go back to what you said right before we, you jumped into Bioshock, which is the whole being able to know that this decision impacts the final game this way and that way. Would you say that this was the, the era that you started to see the rise of that? Because I didn't see that before. At least I, I don't recall. But I never so, saw that where you, a decision would actually change how the game played out. Because this was... So, interestingly also- enough... I think that's actually been decreasing over the years as technology has been getting more advanced. So in the past, as a player who always played RPGs, even in the 90s, you would always have like multiple endings. But it was easier to implement back then because it was just text and a picture. It's like, oh, you have 100 different endings, but they're just text. But when you have to have fully voice acting and you have to have a different cutscene, it became harder. Oh, a game that I did not include on here, Knights of the Old Republic. Oh, Star Wars? Uh, yes. But okay. that would be up there. I did get a lot of enjoyment out of that, but I guess not as much enjoyment as, as out of my top three. Mm-hmm. But that one, you had one of two endings, a good side, a light side ending and a dark side ending, but each of them had different levels. Each of them had different setup. It was really hard to, to program all of that in. And in fact, I feel it's actually been getting worse and worse. I mean, especially this is typified and we'll probably talk about this in our next episode, in Mass Effect 3, in which the, the sprawling endings, all of, your, all of your decade of decisions came down to blue, green, and white. Or blue, red, and white. Or green. There we go. Interesting. I actually, uh, because I didn't have that perspective, I actually thought it was the other way around, where at least on the big-budget uh, games, like, you know, GTA... I think it was GTA 4 that at least I saw it at the big one. But then also, like, I think some of these other games, like you mentioned, because these, these are big budget games, right? GTA 5 City, mm-hmm. Fallout 3, Bioshock, Mass Effect. Fallout 3 did RPG. have multiple endings, but that's because it's an RPG. Right. So, interesting. So, what are some of your honorable mentions? Yes. So, honorable mentions. Speaking of a game, if you, if you want to go back and play an old game that has multiple endings, that has infinite choice... And that actually, uh, that actually is, is kind of the grandfather of a lot of cyberpunk-esque games, including Cyberpunk 2077, which is probably going to be the, the first game of 2020 that I get into. The only game of 2020, potentially, that I get into. Deus Ex 1. Uh, there are th- multiple Deus Ex games, but the Deus Ex 1, that was the game. The big thing about this was, and why it's held in such rever- uh, reverence, is you can play a mission any way you want. You can go in stealth. You can go in charisma. You can go in guns blazing. You can find there's like you can find a workaround where you kind of skip the whole mission. There's like infinite ways to finish a single mission. Hmm. 
Notable honorable mention, the Tony Hawk Pro Skater 3 specifically, but the Pro Skater series in general. Another game with great soundtracks. Uh, Max Payne. <laughs> Noir, first-person shooter. Invented bullet time. Uh, Portal. Did you ever play Portal? Uh, maybe briefly. It's like that was just game purely based on gameplay and, uh, and humor. But I think a game worth talking about as a trend as we kind of wrap up 2000, 2009, is the rise of Nintendo Wii, and specifically, do you know what the top-selling, yeah, there's a list, but do you know what the top-selling game of all time in this decade was? No. Wii Sports. Well, I saw it in your work talking about, but I didn't realize that's what it was. What That makes sense. Wii was, when, when you know, Wii came around at the time when PlayStation and Xbox were really pushing the whole, we have power, we have mm-hmm. power, especially the PlayStation 3, right? That was the, yeah. That was the cell processor, the first cell processor in a, in a console. Yeah, so it was PlayStation 3, Xbox 360, and that was the time also, like, while we're on that topic, PlayStation 3 was pushing for, for Blu-ray, um, Xbox 360 was pushing for HD DVD, yep. and then repeating lost. processing <laughs> power and graphics. There was also the whole, I think it was around the time, the, the rise of uh, high-definition TVs. That yes. Right, with the rise of Blu-ray. And, and plasma TVs were going away and true HD TVs were coming in. Right. And or LCD TVs. Of course, I think we will have to talk about this in a different series because like the whole tech and then the other side is interesting. But the Wii came around at a time when all these guys are trying to be like, hey, I've got the most muscle. And the Wii just comes around as like... Um, hey, all these casual gamers that you guys have forgotten for the past 20 years, we got them now. It's, it's like the Beatle. The Beatle... Yep. The Volkswagen Which, Beetle amongst uh, American superpowered to cars. It's really interesting because this will this repeats itself when we cover this when we cover the next decade next time. This repeats itself, I feel, with Pokemon Go. Yep. But with the Wii, it was effectively what happened was so Wii Sports was bundled with every single Wii, which is why it was the number one selling game. But it was also the game that everyone talked about was motion controls. If you think about it, these were really, really bad motion controls. It was like, flick your wrist this way, move vertical, move horizontal, move directional. That was it. It was nothing special. No. Um, but an innovative uh, package for the time. I remember playing the, the, the boxing. I remember playing the tennis with friends. Yeah, the uh, boxing, which was not at all boxing. It was just you randomly flailing your arms forward. Hey, it was, I know it was some friend's uh, workout, right? That was like their way of, of, of moving. Um, the golf. Oh, Both. yes. Now, Making I mean, sure I guess right swing. here's an interesting thing. If you remember Wii Sports, the person who would have the Wii on in the dorm, that guy was the, the, the coolest, most popular guy in the dorm, always. <laughs> because, oh, we all want to go over and play Wii Sports. We want to, like, flail this Wii's controller around. Right. But actually, I want to say something interesting, <clears throat> which, is, which is I just realized with the random punching gestures and the motion. The games you see today in the VR space are not too dissimilar from Wii Sports. I mean, I remember I was testing this punching game for Oculus. There's Beat Saber, which is just, again, flick this up, right, left, down, so on and so forth. But I wonder with that, why, again, we've talked about this before, why was the Wii Sports games so popular and so mass appeal, whereas these VR games, which are essentially the same game, but even better in terms of interactivity or more accurate in terms of interactivity, just not taking off. 
I, I'd say my first attempt at trying to understand and explain that would be, I think it was really easy to get into the Wii, right? Like your parents mm-hmm. could get into it, your little siblings could get into it, like grandparents could get into it. Like it was, very, it was a very inclusive way, right? And it was kind of like when, you know, the first iPhone came out and it was like, instead of having all this complicated keyboards and stuff, just use what you were born with, right? As the marketing mm-hmm. uh, speak came out, right? Which is your finger. And here, it was like, here, I can pick up this- Is a controller. Yep. Controller, and I flick it using my own motion will result in something, right? And then I can, I don't need to spend a lot of time explaining. I think with VR, first off, you need to have the tech, right? Yep. Or either you go to a place that has it. So it's kind of like, hey, kind of like when you go together to go like uh, um, cart, race cart driving, right? Mm-hmm. It's like you and your f- few friends will go. It's like a, you know, a couple hour outing in the afternoon. For VR, I feel it's the same way, right? Either you have a powerful enough computer at home and then you have the space, but then that's just you, right? Or maybe you can have two people doing it, mm-hmm. right? Or you go to a place where they have like these huge warehouses. I think there's a company that kind of provides that around the world where you can go to this place, you can put on some VR with friends. But like, are you likely, you, I mean, you and I could go do that, but would mm-hmm. you and your sister and like your, your dad and it's mom? It's not accessible, yeah. So that's where I see it, right? And again, if you're going to do it at home, um, I think it's like maybe you can do it for two people, I think. But you also have a really beefy graphics card. Exactly. You need a very powerful computer so and the right amount of space. So I think that's why like, it will kind of feels like it'll remain a niche. Mm-hmm. I mean, the interesting thing, too, is if you think about this, the Wii came out and became popular the same time the iPhone came out and became popular. Remember, you were just talk, uh, talking about two interesting things, which kind of like where everyone else was doing was going one way, these companies went the other. Yeah, so you could kind of say, I don't mean to say it wasn't, um, because PlayStation 2 still to this day remains the best-selling console. Um, so there's obviously a market for, for gamers. But I think the, the iPhone and the Wii kind of showed like, hey, you know, there's a mass market of people that would like to play games but don't want to, one, for example, spend hundreds of dollars on a dedicated game console or build a, a computer desktop to do that. Um, so there's still the demand like where the hardcore gamers become more and more of a niche, but you still have this mass market of like, like we, we're seeing with Pokemon Go, Candy Crush. Um, what, what was the other really famous? Uh, um, Flapping Birds, Angry Birds. Flappy Birds, but like the company with a Z. I'm forgetting its name. Zenya? Zenya. Yeah, Zen- Zenga. Zenga, yes. Zenya yeah, is the, yeah. Zenya is the clothing store. <laughs> I was just like Zenya. Z- Zenga. Zenga with its form. Yeah, Zenga. And yes. the, on the rise of Facebook, right? So I think these things, like with we, what made it super powerful was that, like I said, like your parents could come in, your grandparents can come in, your little siblings, like everybody could play and like feel like they're you know sports brought everybody together in a way that playing like you know nba or or mlb on a playstation doesn't right and then with with you know with the rise of smartphones right it's like you already have a phone that serves as like an internet and a camera here's some games right and then with the rise of facebook then you see the rise of of social gaming right so i think that's what they kind of tapped into that the others didn't where it was an accessible game that could still be played in a social way right not to say mm-hmm. like you know um you know with even with gta 5 they had gta online. there's gta online yeah right but still that's only already catering to a small 
Like you're not going to play that with your mom. Yep. This is true. (laughs) This is true. I will say, all right. So uh, so let's, let's wrap up the first part of our games episode with, with one last topic, which was from 2000 to 2009, your best gaming memory. Batman uh, Arkham series. I believe that was 2010. No, Arkham Asylum came out in 2009. Oh, it did? Okay, it counts. That was one of my favorite games. I would remember, um, and even, yeah. It had the voice actors from the animated series. That's what made it so great. Well, yes, it was a great story. It was a great game, great graphics, great gameplay. And then, of course, Arkham City, I remember we went and got it and spent, like, Thanksgiving break just playing Mm -hmm. it every day for 10-plus hours a day with my roommate. Mm -hmm. Um, So... For me, it's, you know, San Andreas, uh, uh, Batman, Arkham Asylum, and uh, uh, Assassin's Creed. Mm-hmm. Yours? So, I think, I think my most favorite gaming memory, and this was during this time. Okay, so Tony Hawk's, this was early 2000, but those, those was Tony Hawk Pro Skater 2. I know Pro Skater 3 is, my, is the game that I put on my list. But I remember... I think yes, I think it was I think it was Pro Skater 2. Uh there was me, it was it was back when you were still played local multiplayer. This was the N64 version. Mm-hmm. And me and my friend, what we used to do is we used to have we used to go to this level, choose this particular song on 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 this level, and then we had like a choreographed routine that the two of us would do in that level for a max amount of points that you could record the whole video. This was one of the games where you could record the whole video and you could see to the song. So we'd have this routine where I would do this one thing. It was Tony Hawk. We turned down some cheats. So gravity would be different. So I was Tony Hawk. He was like Bob Burnquest or someone. I'd start off with a 900 going the opposite direction, which is actually physically impossible from like a ramp into a half pipe. And the videos are long since gone. Now I don't think any of these N64, these memory cards are still around we had this big routine, which I think it took us a good three, four hours to go and record this entire routine where we would do this whole thing to, I want to say the song was Kryptonite by Goldfinger, but I, I, I could be confusing these songs now. And I just remember it took us so long in order to record that. But when we finally got it, because, you know, you mess up once, it's a two, and it's, I think it's a two and a half minute or a three minute uh, level playthrough routine. Right. So if you mess up once, you have to restart from the beginning. Oh, gosh. So we did that for several, several hours and just finally nailed that uh, at the end. I think that was early 2000s and probably my most favorite video game memory from this time period. Awesome. Awesome. All right. All right. So with that, next time we'll talk about 2010 to 2019. We'll give an update on our connected work from home status and how that's been going for us whether or not we're in a lockdown state at that point. But until then, this is another episode of Silicon Control. Thank you so much for listening and have a great week.